You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to Luke's Gospel. I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Heavenly Father, we do look to you, O Father, for your blessing as we come to your word. Full recognition, Lord, that there's nothing we can do apart from you. We're not interested in trying, Father. We desire that you be our teacher and our guide this morning, that you teach us from your great word. Now teach us these things, O Father, and align our hearts around them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, We turn to Luke this morning to start a a small series, if you will. It will take us into uh, the Christmas season. And we, you know, we conclude our, our work in prayer um, with um, full acknowledgement that we've just begun to touch on the surface of prayer. Uh, we'll revisit it again sometime in the future. Um, but this morning we, uh, we begin to uh, uh, take a journey into, uh, uh, towards Christmas. We're going to let Luke be our guide. And um, I'm not really very good at planning sermons like long time in advance. It never worked for me. Um, I write things all the time that you never hear because I throw them away and I chuck them and um, sometimes I dig them back out and use them again, but I'm just not very good. I could write the messages easily enough. I could write them. I just won't preach them. That's all. It just doesn't seem like it ever happens. Uh, But I have uh, worked on a timeline and Luke chapter one should take us all the way to the 19th of uh, December which is a long time in the future for me, actually. Um, um, I, I really spend a lot of time in prayer looking for the Lord's direction uh, for this. And, uh, but Luke chapter 1 um, is a good place for us to be this time of the year. And when I'm studying a passage of Scripture, I, I share this with you so perhaps you'll be able to benefit as you study. When I'm studying a passage of Scripture, one of the questions I'm always asking of the passage is, what is unique about it? Uh, what is unique about this particular passage, or what could we say about this passage uh, that we wouldn't be able to say about any other passage? Um, or we could ask the question this way. If we didn't have this passage, what would the loss be? What would it look like? What would it be? It's uh, asking a similar question, at least a co- close cousin to the first question. When we ask that question of this text, we get an extraordinary answer. And I think one of the reasons that we don't see this answer is because we get too focused on who Theophilus is. When you read this text, how many of you have been like, who's Theophilus? And we're going to talk about Theophilus in a little bit, okay? We're going to talk about Theophilus. But I think in some respects, 
that, that, that kind of blinds us to what we actually have going on here. When we ask the question, what is unique about this text? What is unique about this text? Is this probably, I think it's the only text. At least it's the only text where we get such a clear snapshot of the creation or the writing or the composition, if you will, of a gospel. Now think about that for a moment, and let's read it again. What is Luke saying? And as much as many have undertaken to what? Compile a narrative. A compile a narrative of what? Of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, what is going on here? Um, well, what's going on here is Luke says in verse 3 that it seemed good to him to what? To write a gospel. That's the subject here, isn't it? This compiling of a narrative, if you will, uh, in this writing of a gospel. Now, we immediately have a question. Uh, really, it comes up, in the, at least in the ESV, it comes up in the third word. First word, in as much. Second word, as. Third word, many. If you're like me, when you read the word many, you're going to be asking one question. Who? Who are the many? Who are these people? Who, who are they? And this, and this begins to take us into a subject I don't think I've spoken of in a really long time, so long that maybe some of you have never heard me speak of it. Has anybody ever heard me speak about this, the, the alleged synoptic problem? Has anybody ever heard you probably not. It's been a long, long time since we've talked about that. Many of you have study Bibles, and in the introductions to uh, the Gospels and Acts, you you may have a uh, some ink spilt uh, concerning the uh, the so-called synoptic problem. How many have heard of the synoptic problem before? Uh, what exactly is that? Well, and I'll try to make it as simple as I can. Um, it's widely um, accepted that Mark is the first and earliest gospel. Not unanimously accepted, uh, but it's widely accepted that Mark is first. So Mark writes his gospel under the superintendence of the Apostle Peter. And um, if you were to read the New Testament for the first time, and you say, okay, I'm going to pick up the New Testament, and I'm going to start with the gospels. You leaf through your Bible, you see Mark is the shortest. So you decide, I'm going to start with Mark. So you read Mark's gospel. Good choice, by the way. Read Mark's gospel. So you read Mark's gospel, and you say, okay, that was good. Now I'm going to, I'm going to take a moment, and I'm, I'm going to read Matthew next. Now, when you read Matthew, you're going to read for a little bit, and you're going to say, wait a second, this is familiar. So you turn the pages to Mark, you say, aha, yeah, I've read this in Mark. And you're going to begin to see a massive amount of similarities between uh, Matthew and Mark. And when you complete Matthew and you go to Luke, you're going to find the same thing. Luke is using a lot of the same material that Mark is using. Now, this has led to a hypothesis. These are theories. This has led to a theory that Mark is first. So Mark writes his gospel under the superintendence of the Apostle Peter. And Matthew, uh, he comes along and writes his gospel. And on his desk, he has Mark's gospel. And he has this other source that scholars call Q. How many have heard of Q? What in the world is Q? Q simply is the first letter of a German word that means source. So 
He has this, he has Mark's gospel on his desk. He has Q on his desk. And this is known as the two-source theory. You'll read about that sometimes. You'll especially read about this in introductions to the New Testament. You'll read about some of your study Bibles will have this, uh, this information in it. Uh, so he has, he has Mark, Matthew has Mark, and he has Q. Um, and, of course, the two-source theory would hold that Luke is doing the same thing. On his desk, he's got Mark, and, and he's got Q. Now, there are other questions. This doesn't solve all the questions. There are other questions because you're, you're reading the gospel. You read Mark. Then you read Matthew. You say, whoa, there's lots of stuff in Matthew that's in Mark. Then you read Luke and you say, well, look at this. There's lots of stuff that's in Luke that's in Mark. But there's stuff that's in Luke that's not in Mark but is in Matthew. So there's commonality between Matthew and Luke that isn't in Mark. And this has led scholars to say, well, here's, the, here's, the, here's how we explain this. So when Matthew writes, he has Mark on his desk, he has Q on his desk, and he has M on his desk. What's M stand for? I suppose it stands for Matthew, Matthew's sources. Um, so he has these things on his desk. And Luke, the same thing. When Luke, What Luke has on his desk... He has Mark, he has, he has Q, and he has L. These are the theories. I just want you to be aware of uh, some of these theories. Now, one thing we need to be aware of and we need to be conscious of when we're having these discussions is that these discussions are never divorced from a doctrine of inspiration. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by the doctrine of inspiration? And this, is, this has really had me thinking this week because it's been a while since I taught on inspiration. And we don't use a church calendar here per se, but uh, sometimes there, you, you see there is a little bit of an advantage to the church calendar because if we had inspiration on our church calendar, you, at least one Sunday a, a, a year we would touch on uh, this important doctrine. We're going to touch on it next year because this is something we need to, uh, to touch on. But what is the doctrine of inspiration? The doctrine of inspiration, simply put, is that the scriptures are ultimately God's word. That God works in the author, the human author, in such a degree, he doesn't override his personality. He doesn't override his, uh, his normal syntax, his normal, uh, his normal semantics, if you will, but works in such a way so that ultimately the product of the writing is indeed the word of God. The apostle Paul uses a, a word that is very, very powerful to describe that. And it's the word theonoustos. It simply means God breathed. That all scripture is theonoustos. All scripture is breathed out by God. So however the, 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 the writers worked or labored, if, if Matthew had on his desk uh, Mark's gospel and Q, we need to understand that ultimately the Holy Spirit is working in Matthew's pen. Uh, he is working. And he's not overriding their personalities. I mean, we can see their personalities uh, uh, on the page. It would be tough to confuse the writing of John with the writing of the Apostle Paul, for example. And it would, it would be tough to confuse Paul with Peter. I mean, you, if you get, you get familiar with enough, you can, you, Peter has his own diction, his own style, and what have you. You start to take, you start to see the personality uh, there. Um, Luke, uh, you could clearly see a personality as you read uh, Luke's gospel. Now, this starts to answer the question. I want to throw something else out that I, th I think you'll also find quite fascinating. And what we need to keep in mind here is what is happening 
is Jesus is crucified. On the third day, he, right, he, he, he rose from the grave. He appears to many, and then he ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, right? In the, in the days and in the weeks and in the months and in the years that transpire after that, the apostles are running around and they're sharing these things. They're running around and they're proclaiming these things. People are coming to the faith and they're running around sharing these things. And it, it's, it's just a matter of time before uh, they become conscious that, you know, we're going to need to start writing these things down. I think initially they probably believed Jesus is going to return any time. I mean, who? how would they have had any way of knowing that it would be two millennia from now, but Jesus still hadn't returned. They would have no way of knowing that. And if you look at your Bibles, let me take you to a couple of spots. Um, Ephesians 5. If you turn to Ephesians 5 and verse 14, let me show you a couple of things here. Now, what I'm going to share with you is not unanimously accepted. Um, it's pretty widely accepted. Um, but I just want to share with you that it's not, it's, there's certainly no unanimity on this. But if you look at Ephesians 5 and verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, now notice, you have quotation marks, and many of you are going to have an indentation. What follows is going to be set in indentation. Um, I'm using a verse-by-verse -verse Bible, um, and it doesn't do that indentation. Um, one thing I noticed about this, this is an LSB. Um, the, one of the new translations is out, and they do make a reference in here. They, they indented. It's a verse-by-verse -verse Bible as well. This is really a preacher's Bible. Um, they, they make an indentation there uh, to kind of give you a clue that, or a key to kind of jostle your memory that, okay, this is being indented. What is going on here with the words, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you? What is going on there? Well, it could be an allusion to the Old Testament. That is a possibility. But many scholars, many scholars are of the... Um, uh, of the stripe that what we have here is a fragment of an early hymn. Now, there's some will push back on that. There's some will push back on that. And, you know, I went to a seminary that was an exclusive psalm singing seminary. In fact, non-instrumental and exclusively psalm singing. Great bunch of people. I love these folks. But they're of the, they're, they're of a deep, uh, deep rooted conviction that we're only to sing psalms. So I, I, what I'm fearful of, and many of them would push back, and they'd say, Rick, that's this not a fragment of a hymn. It's an allusion to the Old Testament and nothing more. But what I'm a little fearful for is that if I was so bent that we're only to sing psalms, I probably would naturally push back against that, even if I didn't realize it. My framework might cause me to push back against that. This isn't one isolated case. We have a number. I could take you through a number. I won't. We don't have time this morning. I'm going to take you through three of them. Uh, but we could go through many more where it seems that these words that the, that the um, Scripture writer is using are words that people knew that they knew, like these words were being circulated. They're making reference to something that the, that the camp knows about. Let me give you another example. Turn with me to uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 
And this is actually, um, in some respects, for our discussion, a little bit more fascinating. 1 Timothy 3.16. Let's give you a moment to find your place there. 1 Timothy 3.16. And many of your study Bibles are going to have notes in them that say possibly, or this may be. Again, it's not universally accepted, but there's a lot of people. It's enough so that the... That the um, that some of the best study Bibles make reference to it, that this might be, um, it might be an early hymn, but what we have here, let's read it, verse 16, 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, uh, the Reformation Study Bible has a note on this verse saying that it appears to be an ancient creed. An ancient creed. Now, that shouldn't be surprising to us. Again, let's, let's think of the history. Let's go back. What's happening? Jesus has ascended. Weeks, days, months, decades now have gone by. He hasn't returned. Many of the apostles have been martyred. Um... It's, it's becoming clear that we need to, we need to start writing things down. And what, what's going to form first? Hymnody? It seems reasonable, doesn't it? And hymnody. What is hymnody? What is good hymnody going to express? It's going to express, as Luke says, the things that have been accomplished among us. It's going to express gospel things. We're really blessed here. And I will share with you, go visit some other churches sometime when you're on vacation, and you'll see that we're very blessed here to be singing the songs that we sing. Uh, sometimes you take it for granted, and you go visit another church, and, and the songs are awful. Uh, Tammy, have I had that, Tammy and I have had that experience where if you take, why, why are they singing them? Well, the, the music is good. We shouldn't be choosing what we use in worship because we like the beat, or because we like the melody. Um, take away the music. Take away the beat. Take away all of that. And look at its lyrical content. And is it saying anything? That would be a good question to ask of it. Is it saying anything? And secondly, is it saying anything uh, that uh, wouldn't bother a Jehovah's Witness or wouldn't bother an Orthodox Jew or wouldn't bother somebody who has somebody who's rejecting Christ? Uh, and oftentimes, many of those songs don't pass those tests. Why is this so important? You know, uh, many of you will remember Wanda. She was with us uh, for a number of years, and she was always here. Wanda was always here. Uh, Wanda was having a... This really struck me. One morning, Wanda come in. Uh, she was always one of the first ones here. Sometimes she'd be in the parking lot waiting on us. Uh, Tammy and I would pull in, and there's Wanda sitting in the car <laughs> waiting on us. And one morning, she said, I want to talk to you. And I said, Okay. Uh, she wouldn't mind me sharing this with you. And I've shared it with you before. But she said, you know, last night was a bad night. I had a really bad night. And then I thought about that song, you know, that song we sang. I don't know what the name of it is, that song. And she's going, oh, oh, oh. she's trying to hum the song, you know. And uh, I, I didn't get what song she was talking. Then finally, I got it. I'm like, oh, I said, well, what? And I don't remember what song it was now, but I, I started smiling. I started laughing to myself. And I'm like, Wanda... That song actually is taken almost directly out of Scripture. And the reason you found so much comfort in that song is because it was largely the Word of God. It really matters what we sing. 
And of course, these ancient hymns are going to have great fidelity with the things that have been accomplished among us. So I think what we're seeing is the, is the, is the beginning of hymnody. I really do think that there's a case for that in the New Testament. But in, in 1 Timothy 3.16, I think what we have here is a creedal form. I'm going to give you one more. I like to give three, you know. Three is a good number. It's a biblical number. You come across it a lot. Um, go to 1 Corinthians 15. And it's, it's a passage that I've made reference to many times. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through, let's say, 6. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through uh, 6. While you're turning there, uh, Paul writes in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now look what follows here. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, let me digress just for a moment, because occasionally some of you will ask me about commentaries. And let me just take a moment, just bear with me just a moment. Uh, when it comes to commentaries and, and multi-volume commentaries, um, a number of you, when, when I first started studying for the ministry, I was just, I don't I think maybe I was just starting to study at Geneva College. I, my, my Uncle Bill had passed away, and I got a phone call from my Aunt Mary, and she, she called me up, and she goes, we want to know if you'd be interested in doing the funeral. And... I, I, I want to tell you, it's one of the scariest phone calls I've ever had in my life. I couldn't tell her no. I, I, I shared with her. I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm really, if it's permissible for me to do that or not. I need to talk to my pastor. You know, I'm just getting started here. She goes, yeah, I know that. We know that. But uh, Bill would have liked someone in the family to have done this. And we would really like you. If you, if you, if you don't want it, if you can't do it, we understand, but we'd really like you to do it. I said, okay. And I went to my pastor at the time, and I, I asked him, what do you think? Can I do this? And he goes, I don't see any reason why you can't do this. Um, so I went and did the funeral. Scared to death. Did the best I could. Um, after the funeral was over, my Aunt Mary came to me with a check. She handed me a check for $150. And I said, Mary, what's, what's this? She goes, that's for you. I said, what for? For doing the funeral. I'm like, I'm paid for doing a funeral for family members. She goes, no, 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 no. You're to take this because Bill had already set this aside. This was to go to whoever did his funeral. This isn't my money. It's, it was Bill's money. My Aunt Mary was not my Uncle Bill's wife. She just took care of them. And I, I and she wasn't going to take it back. She said, it wasn't my money to give you. It's something. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I still don't feel good about it, but here's what I'll do. I'll invest it. I have to build a library. I'm going into ministry, and libraries are expensive. You all know that. I said, I'm going to invest it. And I used that money to buy my first multi-volume set of commentaries, which I chose to buy Calvin's commentaries. And if you want a good multi-set, um, it doesn't cover every book in the Bible, but it's pretty, it's pretty thorough. Um, I, I used that money to buy that. That was the first multi-volume commentary set that I ever bought. 
And my Uncle Bill's money has been working for the church ever since I bought that. I've used those commentaries extensively for many, many years. You all have been blessed many times from that um, monetary gift of my Uncle Bill. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to digress. I want to just give thanks with Thanksgiving time. And I want to give thanks uh, for his generosity. Um, but a second, if you're thinking about getting a, and I might even advise this maybe first, if you're all thinking about getting a multi-volume commentary set, I meant to check to see if it's still in print. I think it is. And it's the commentary set by William Hendrickson. Some of you have heard of it. Now, this is only a commentary on the New Testament, but it's every book of the New Testament. William Hendrickson set out to write a commentary on the entire New Testament. He was unable to complete it. And uh, Simon Kistemacher came in and finished the books that William Hendrickson hadn't finished. And Simon Kistemacher wrote the commentary on 1 Corinthians. And when Simon Kistemacher was commenting on 1 Corinthians 15, he observed that what we have here in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6, is a creedal form. It's a creedal form. He's not the only one to come to that conclusion, by the way. That what we have here is a creedal form. And, and why is that important? Why am I babbling about all of this? Let's go back to Luke. What is Luke saying to us? He is saying that many have undertaken to compile a narrative. And what I want to show is in these weeks and in these months and in these years after Jesus has ascended, this work of putting, uh, putting to writing the message of the gospel is taking place at the hands of many people. Who are the many? We don't have a list. We don't have uh, an inventory of the list of hands who, who undertook to do this. But I think we can, we can be rest assured that Mark is one of them, that John is one of them, the apostles are one of them, perhaps some of the other apostles uh, wrote some things. People are writing things, and Luke has access to them. He's making mention of them. They have undertaken to uh, compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. Now, I've been making reference to the things that have been accomplished. How can we be exact about that? There's something else I want to show you about Luke's gospel. And if you turn to Acts, some of you already know this because I made a lot of noise about this when we were studying Acts on Wednesday nights. And if you go to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, and you read the prologue to Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, in the first book, What? Oh, Theophilus. Now, it's hard to forget that, isn't it? Now, if you're reading through the New Testament, you think, well, Theophilus, I remember that guy. That's the, that's the guy I was scratching my head over. Who in the world's Theophilus? Here he is again. We've seen him in the third gospel. Now we see him again. But notice before that, the author to Acts is saying in the first book. Now, what are we to, what are we to conclude from this? Well, this is a two-volume set. And as a two-volume set, it needs to be interpreted together. It's the same author. We know the author is Luke. Unanimity in the ancient church, Luke is the author. That wasn't up for grabs. Unanimously, Luke was the author. Luke and authorship didn't come into, wasn't contested, to my knowledge, until the 19th century, where everything was being contested. There was a major assault against the scriptures during that time, uh, and continues uh, to this day. Um, we know that because Luke begins around chapter 16, he begins using the pronoun we. 
the author is saying we, 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 which means the author was present during some of these uh, events that he's writing about. So Luke is writing his first book. Now, if we ask the question from Luke chapter 1, what are the things that have been accomplished among us? Luke is answering as he summarizes what he has done in his first volume. He says, listen, Theophilus, I have dealt with all of the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we get our question answered by our author simply by turning to the, the introduction of his second volume. Now, let's go back to Luke again, and let's ask another question. Um, if many have undertaken to compile a narrative, why would Luke throw his hand into uh, the till? And we don't know a lot about Luke, but one thing we do know about Luke is he's a physician. That should be interesting. Everyone in the medical field should be interested in that. He was not just a physician, but the Apostle Paul calls him the Beloved physician in Colossians 4. I think, what, 14? 414, maybe. I think. Four something. Um, I think. <laughs> Pretty sure. He's definitely called the beloved physician. <laughs> it's been a long week. <laughs> um, why would he call him the beloved physician? Because people knew him. They knew him. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul. He was a companion to many of the apostles. He had made his rounds. Um, he does a lot of work. One of the applications I wanted to make this morning, we do not have time to make. We'll make another time. But he's doing all of this legwork uh, to take and, and all of these interviews, and he's running around. But what is his, what is, why is he doing this? Uh, well, he's a physician. He wants to see a comprehensive gospel account written. That's what physicians do, isn't it? Don't, a good physician is someone who's going to be analytical and thorough, right? How about a doctor that's not analytical or thorough? Do you want to go to him or her? They're out there. Not usually a good idea, is it? Are they out there? Uh, they are, aren't they? You know they are. But good doctors are not like that. Good doctors are analytical and they're thorough. And let's think about it. Why am I saying this? Why am I suggesting this? Because Luke's gospel is longer than all the other gospels. And in fact, when Luke's gospel is added to Acts, it becomes quite long. It's actually more than 30% of the entire New Testament. Mark begins with the ministry of John the, God, John the Baptist. Matthew begins with a genealogy, but a genealogy that only takes you back to Abraham. Luke throws in his, he throws in a genealogy, but that genealogy goes back all the way to Adam. And Luke, as we're going to see next week, we're looking at the birth of John the Baptist foretold. The angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, tells him, it's your wife of many years who's been barren and childless for all these years is going to conceive and have a child. Luke is the one that gives us that information. So he's going back probably a year before the birth of Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist is roughly six months older than Jesus. So we don't know exactly when this prophecy was given to Zechariah, but it's earlier than the conception, Right? Um, so um, Luke is going all the way back to that. But where does Luke, where does Luke end his gospel? He ends his gospel with the, the ascension of Jesus. 
the ascent of Jesus. And then he picks up again in Acts. He's the only writer that gives us a sacred history of the early church, but there's some overlap. The end of his gospel overlaps with Acts very briefly, and then he continues. Now, when you look at the span of Luke's material, he begins before John the Baptist is born, and he takes us all the way into the probably the mid-60s A.D. This is a time frame of more than 60 years that we have here. Uh, what a tremendous gift that Luke has given to us. Now, I haven't even begun to touch on the real reason that Luke has done this. And that reason, we don't have to guess about. It's given to us. Luke says in verse 2, he says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, Luke was not an eyewitness to these things. Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good, verse 3, to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. we got to talk about it, Theophilus briefly, right? I guess I mentioned him several days. Alex is laughing. Who is Theophilus? Who is he? I don't know. <laughs> Keep you on the edge of your seat for half an hour only to say, I don't know, but I will say this. He is a person. He's not a symbol. Um, there are some who say... That Theophilus is a symbol. His name means lover of God. And some say, well, he's a symbol of all those. He symbolizes all those who love God. Um, no, no, that's not, I don't think that's very good. He's, he's referred to as most excellent Theophilus. He's obviously a person, perhaps a person who is um, in some level of authority, but maybe just somebody who is just, his character is very noble. Um, we don't know who he is. But here's what we do know about him. If you look at the last line of verse 4, you see that he has been taught. Why is that so important? It's very, very important. He is someone who has been taught the truths. He is someone who has been indoctrinated in the things that have been accomplished. So from that we conclude in all likelihood he is a believer in Jesus Christ. But perhaps worst case, he is someone who is right on the edge of giving his heart and his life to Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, why is Luke writing? He is writing, verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closer for some time past, to write an early account for you, most excellent Theophilus, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, I take the position that Luke's gospel is written, its primary purpose is for the church, not for evangelism, but for the church. It can be used for evangelism. It has been used for evangelism, and untold millions of people have been saved reading Luke's gospel. But it's primarily given. It's primarily a gift to strengthen the church, to strengthen her faith. And because of that, it needs to be read. If we're not reading it and we're not studying it, we're not going to reap a benefit from it. If we're not in difficult times this morning, some of us probably aren't. Some of us are. Um, if we're not in difficult times right now, I don't... I, 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 listen, I, I, I can't tell the future, but based on everything that I see, I see the same things you see, and we talk quite often about it. It looks to me like we've got some really difficult times ahead. Now, how are we going to get through those? Well, God's given us the tools. He's given us the resources. You know, Luke has done his work 
But let's never divorce the discussion of the formation of a gospel from the inspiration of Scripture. We must never do that. As Luke is laboring, as Luke is gathering, as Luke is writing, he is always and constantly being superintended by the work of the Holy Spirit so that what he ends up with, his final product, is indeed the Word of God. And why has it been given? It's been given to us so that our faith may be strengthened. Isn't that wonderful? So as we think about Thanksgiving, I want to make an application to Thanksgiving. As we think about Thanksgiving, let's thank the Lord for his word. You know, when you gather around your table and you're about ready to to say a blessing, and you might ask the question, what are we thankful for this year? Let's let's be thankful. Where, Where would we be without God's word? Where would we be? But let's not stop there. Let's let's thank the Lord for Luke's gospel because now already we're getting an idea of the purpose of Luke's gospel. It's to strengthen your faith. Faith is easy when times are good. Faith becomes very difficult when persecution comes, when hard times come, when death comes, when grief comes. We need to be in this book. We need to have our noses in this book. Um, so let's thank the Lord for Luke's gospel, but, but let's get more specific. Look at verse 4 again. The purpose here is that we may have certainty. That's the title of this morning's message, in case you're wondering. Certainty. These are given to us, not so that we can make an educated guess, not so that we can, well, in all likelihood, this is the truth. These things have been written so that we can be certain. You can be certain. Certain of what? Certain of what happens to you when you die. Certain of what happens to your loved ones who are in Christ when they die. Certain of the fact that no matter what we're going to endure in this lifetime, it's temporary if we're in Christ. That's staggering. That's why it's called good news. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much. As we think about Thanksgiving this year, Father, may we thank you, O Lord, for your word. May we thank you for Luke's gospel in the book of Acts. May we thank you, O Lord, for the certainty that we can have, which is ours. And, O Lord, I pray that this will motivate us, O Father, to pick up the book and read, to pick up the book and study to pick up the book and become more familiar, Uh, perhaps even buy some commentaries and learn more and more and more about about Luke and about Acts. And, oh, Father, we thank you lastly for the certainty that you've given us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.